I'm Lou. I'm the lead pastor here at King's. We're glad you're with us. Some of you visiting with us this morning. It's great. We go through books of the Bible here at the ch- at our church primarily, and we are in the Gospel according to John. Started in 1924. No, not that long ago. It, it's been it's been a great study together. We're in John 19. We're going to wrap it up uh, right after Easter. Look at John 20 on Easter morning. Uh, actually, look at John 19 on Good Friday as well, so make sure you come out to those three services, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. So we're going through books of the Bible. We're in John chapter 19, where we left off last week is in John 19, verse 16, and that's where our scripture reading will start. Um, actually, this is not updated. Hey, Rick? Oh, that's Okay. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there's Bible in the back. I'm reading from the ESV. Hear the word of the Lord. John 19. Verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one place from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple, the disciple took her to his own home. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. That's where we are. Children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. We, are, we have come to the place in this wonderful eyewitness gospel account of John, the apostle, of the, of the gruesome and the horrific execution, crucifixion, of Jesus. It is sometime Friday morning. Two major trials of Jesus have concluded. The religious trial, having three phases, was, began when Jesus was arrested and bound in the Garden of Gethsemane and brought to Annas, the patriarchal high priest, and ended with Jesus standing before Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, and the Supreme Court of Israel called the Sanhedrin, and he identified himself as the Son of Man. The one Daniel wrote about in chapter 7. The one who will come in the Shekinah glory cloud and judge the universe. Caiaphas tears his clothes in indignation and charges Jesus with blasphemy deserving death. 
And the whole council agrees and condemns him. The Roman trial begins, second major trial, as the religious leaders brought Jesus before the notorious governor, Pontius Pilate. The mockery of justice had three phases as well. Like the Jewish, the Roman had three phases. And first he's brought to Pilate. No formal charges are brought against Jesus. And when, Jesus, when Pilate asked Jesus, was he a king? He said, yes, but I'm not a king of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And the purpose of my kinship is to bear witness to the truth, the reality of who God is through the, his work and his personhood. Then he was sent to Herod, phase part two of, of the second trial. And Herod treated him with contempt. We read that in Luke. Mocked him and sent him back to Pilate. Last week, we learned of the final phase, the third part of the, of the Roman phase of trial, when Jesus is brought back to Pilate, and Pilate wants to get rid of him. Just he's tired of dealing with Jesus. He's tired of dealing with the Jewish people. So he proposes a solution. It was customary to release one prisoner during the Passover, so Pilate suggests that they would release Barabbas, chapter 18. You can have Barabbas. He is the robber, the murderer, and the rebel. Chapter 18, verse 40, it tells us exactly what they said. They said, no, not this man, not Jesus. We want Barabbas, the murderer, the robber, the insurrectionist. Trade the guilty one, Barabbas, for the innocent one. Put the innocent one where the guilty one ought to be and punish him. And put the guilty one where the innocent one ought to be and treat him as if he was innocent. It can't get any more clear than that. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus' death on the cross is all about. He was taking our place, our guilt, our sin, and evil upon himself. He was treated the way we ought to be treated, the way we deserve to be treated. He died so that we could live. He was bound so that we can go free. Jesus died a substitutionary death, and we see it even in Barabbas' being released. The crowd shouted, crucify the one they call the Christ. Let the guilty one go. Let the innocent one suffer. That's the gospel. So Pilate, finding him innocent, yet flogged him anyway. It's called the fustigatio. It's, it's fustigatio. It's, it's the less severe uh, uh, beating. Hand him over to the soldiers. They mock him. They spit on him. They punch him. They place a crown of thorns on his head, blood Coming from his brow, they beat him with a scepter, all part of the mockery. And Jesus stands bloodied at this final phase and beaten before Pilate, refusing to answer him. And then Pilate says in chapter 19, verse 11, verse 10, that he has authority to release Jesus or to crucify him. And then Jesus speaks up. Chapter 19, verse 11 is where we left off. You have no authority over me at all, unless it has been given to you. You have no authority over me, Pilate. You think you have the right to crucify me or release me, but you have no authority over me at all, unless it has been given to you from above, from God the Father. Pilate wants to get rid of Jesus, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not a friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And what does Pilate do? He folds to political pressure. Sounds familiar. If yielding to popular pressure would somehow advance his interest, help him to get okay with Rome and everything is okay with, with, with the king, everything is good, I'll just do as I say. 
And then if you look at chapter 19, one final ditch effort to get rid of Jesus once and for all, at the very end of, 19, of chapter 19, verse 15, he's like, who shall I crucify? Verse 17, 15, I'm sorry, yeah. Verse 15, behold your king. They cried out away with him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest, look at this, underline this, the chief priest, verse 15 of chapter 19, the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's blasphemy. The Jews knew. The Old Testament is clear. The true king of Israel is God. They had the son of God standing before them, the true and better king than Caesar, but they refused to answer. They, They have just publicly abandoned the messianic hope of God the king at least for the moment. That's where we pick up. So we're going we're gonna to look at the rest of this crucifixion. It's going to get warm in here. We're going to talk about it. We need to. So first we'll see the brutal degradation. We'll see this, this brutal beating of Jesus. Then the ironic description as they hang this placard over his head. The sovereign decision. We'll see the soldiers being part of what God is doing. And then finally, the familial devotion. That's our, our line for, for the two of you that take outlines. That's it right there. I'm, I'm one and somebody else out there is two. I like outlines. I'm sorry. Number one, the brutal degradation. Here we have the, the, the innocent, the perfect, the sinless and spotless lamb of God. In immeasurable humility is led away to the most brutal, the disgraceful and dishonorable form of death, I think, known to man. Crucifixion. Isaiah 53, 7 says that he, Jesus, was oppressed. He was afflicted. He, he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's before its shearers, is silence. In ancient times, crucifixion was synonymous with, with horror and shame. It, it was the death inflicted on slaves and, and war, uh, prisoners of war. Josephus, the, the, the Jewish historian of that day, called it the most pitiable of all deaths. One Roman philosopher calls it that cruel and disgusting penalty. Chapter 19, verse 16a, so he delivered him, Pilate delivered him over to them, those who will crucify him, to be crucified. That's simple. Mark 15, 15 gives us a little insight. It says that wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate did release Barabbas and then had Jesus scourged or flogged, then sent him out to be crucified. That scourging that took place is the third and most brutal type of scourging. The Latin is called verberatio. It was the, it was the one that was brutal and was always connected to other punishments, including crucifixion. The criminal was taken and stripped of his clothes, his hands tied to a post above his head. Then the flogging commenced with what's called a flagulum, whip. Several braids of strips of leather in the leather, incorporated in the leather, were small balls of lead or possibly bones designated to, to rip into the skin. Usually done by two men, one on either side, and, and they would come down on Jesus' back, his shoulders, his lower back, his legs, his buttocks. One doctor who, who studied this said this, at first the heavy thong cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continue, they cut 
deeper and deeper into the subcutaneous tissue, deeper into the tissue, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles, end quote. Jesus is being scourged. His skin would be would be ripped and stripped into long ribbon-like segments, bleeding profoundly. There were times that when they were flogging the criminals before the crucifixion, the victim would lose so much blood and go so much into shock that they would die before they were crucified, that their body, parts of their bones and bowels would be exposed. That when the centurion in charge determined that the prisoners near death, they they don't want to kill them, they would stop. And after that, John just picks up John 16b. So they took Jesus. Mark 15, 15, they crucified him. Then they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic is called Golgotha. You heard the word Calvary. He went to the place of Calvary, Golgotha. Golgotha means the skull. And Calvary in Latin is, comes from the word Calvaria, uh, which it means the skull as well. That's where the word comes from. Verse 18, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on the other side, on either side, and Jesus between them. So familiar was this that John doesn't even get into it. It's just everyone in his day knew what this meant. Most prisoners were being dragged out, screaming. And there goes Jesus just bearing his own cross. Once again, John in his, in his, in his emphasis of the, of the a Passion Week, of the Passion Night, once again greatly emphasizing the sovereign plan of the Father and the Son's obedience to the Father. He went out to the place of crucifixion. One can't not, one cannot have the imagery of, of Isaac in the Old Testament carrying his own bundle of wood on his back as he heads up to the mountain with his father Abraham to be slain, carrying his own wood. Of course, the difference is astounding as well. In that story, a ram was substituted for Isaac. But on Golgotha, there is no such substitute because Jesus is our substitute. He carried his own wood to his own execution. He would die on the very wood in which he carried, unlike Isaac, who was spared. In those days, criminals, as part of their punishment, they would carry their own cross. Usually it was the cross beam. Some of the, some of the scenes you see carrying a whole cross, that usually wasn't the case. They would carry the cross beams. Uh, in Latin, batubalum, they would, they would carry it up there. And we know, according to the synoptics, Simon of Serene aided him along the way. The upright beam, that, what, the, the post is about nine feet, and it's already, usually already in the ground, waiting out on the hill of called Golgotha. Jesus placed on the horizontal beam when he got to the cross, to the area of the cross, and the soldiers would feel the pressure in between the wrist and the hand for the spot, and then they would take a seven-inch, eight-inch Rhode Island nail and drill it right through into the wood. Then go quickly to the other side, leaving some room for flexing of the, of the arms and nail the other hand in. And then they would hoist him up and attach him to the, to the, to the other beam. And then they would do the same thing with his foot, another seven-inch heavy square nail with a little flexibility in the knees and then nail him and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is crucified. Jesus slowly sags down. Again, this is from another doctor's perspective. Jesus slowly sags down with the weight on the nails in his wrists, excruciating pain shoots through his fingers and explodes through his arms into his brain. 
He pushes himself upward to avoid stretching torment. He places his full weight on the nails through his feet. Again, there is searing agony of the nails tearing through the nerves between the bones and the feet. The arms of fatigue, cramping steps in, nodding, cramping, deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. The lungs can't exhale, it can inhale, and he starts to drown in his own blood. Jesus fights to keep himself and just get one more exhaling and stepping on the nails, more pain. Hours of limitless pain. Partial suffocation, Dr. Wright, searing pain as, as he's running up and down at the back of the cross. Pain in the chest begins, and the doctor says, and then the sac around the heart slowly fills with liquid and begins to compress the heart. The heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the veins. Small gulps of air are the only thing available as Jesus gets closer and closer to death. So painful, Roman soldiers were not allowed, women were not allowed. In fact, the word excruciation is born from the Latin word excruciare, meaning from the cross. All this done publicly so everyone can see and everybody can mock. Done outside the wall, outside the gate of Jerusalem, hung the Son of God. Between two men, Matthew and Mark tell us, it was... The men were rebels and robbers, insurrectionists, same Greek word used for Barabbas. There he hung. In fulfillment of Scripture, Isaiah 53, 12, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. Fulfillment of his plan. The brutal degradation. Look at the ironic description or inscription. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this description for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And the irony continues in John. <laughs> Even as the reason for the death of Jesus receives its official description, Inscribe right there in that placard, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You see, the custom in that day is they would put the crime in which you were guilty on, a placard or some sort of, of, of place, a tablet or something, and they would hang it around your neck. And as you went up the Via della Rosa, the, the way of grief in Latin, the sorrow way, everyone would see what crime you, were, you had committed. It was, it was basically telling everybody along that road, along the city, don't do that. This is what happens when you do that. And when they got to the place of the cross, they would take it off the, off the uh, criminal and then they would nail it to the cross so everybody else could see it. But I think there's something going on here with John. The irony in John has been, we've seen it for a long time, it's just unbelievable. I think there's a couple of things. Number one, it reveals to us the actual crime they say Jesus committed was treason, right? He, being a king. That was, that was what they found him guilty of, which is, of course, not true. Being a king, sedation, or treason. Number two, I think it's Pilate's way of getting back to the Jewish people. There was no love between them, right? There was no, you know, it's kind of sort of a revenge, like, listen, you guys were going to go and tell on me to Caesar, going behind my back. You guys constantly going behind my back. And now you say you don't have a king. There's your king. That's why they said, you know, let's change that. 
No, no, there's your king. He really, there's your king. And where does he come from? He comes from that rinky-dinky town in north called Lazarus. Nazareth. Anybody hear Nazareth? No, I, I, I heard it somewhere up north. Nathaniel said to Philip, remember in chapter 1, what good could come from Nazareth? Not only is Jesus the king, he's, he's from Nazareth. And the place was near the city. Everyone saw it. What's interesting, too, I think, is it's written in Aramaic. That's the language of the populace of Jerusalem. It's written in Latin, which is the language of the army and the government. It's written in Greek, which is the universal language of commerce in that day. Do you see the irony? Pilate and the Jews see one thing, but John sees in the death of Jesus, although dying as a Jewish king, the days being declared in his death, that his death was for the whole world. That he was universally the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every major language of that known world is declaring the truth. He is king. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not only the sins of Israel. And the cross of Christ is the means of his exaltation in the very manner of his glorification. But the chiefs were, chief priests were not impressed, as I said. Take, take that down. This man says he's king of the Jews. Take it down. Look at verse 22. Pilate, back to his old lack of cooperation. It is what it is. That's not what it says, but it's the same thing. What I've written, I have written. Now that he's covered himself, he's like, all right, everything's going smoothly. They're getting what they want. Leave me alone. I want nothing to do with this whole thing. Go crucify him. It is what it is. I'm done. I'm done. And he's back to his... Typical, leave me alone. Just want to get on with my job. What's so ironic, and we talked about this, and I'm not going to today, there's a couple things. One is that he's the king, and he really is the king. And they're mocking it, but he really is the king. We, We saw that already. But there's something else I want you to see. Look at verse 17. It says, and he went out. So he's voluntarily being led. Verse 20, verse 20 Second part of verse 20, it says, the place Jesus was crucified was near the city. See that? Not in the city. Back in chapter 17, we said that Jesus in his high priestly prayer was was interceding for his people. We said that he became the actual high priest on the cross. He became the permanent mediator. Just like in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, uh, the, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies through a thick and, 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 and uh, big temple uh, uh, curtain. And he would go in with incense. And he would go in, which was the prayer, and he would go in with an animal sacrifice because there was a holy God. His Shekinah glory was there, and man was coming in. And if he'd not come in with the sacrifice, he wasn't allowed into the presence of God. You just can't walk into the presence of God. You need blood atonement. And he would come in with the blood of an animal which would temporarily atone for the sins of the nation. But Jesus becomes our permanent high priest because on the cross the veil was torn and we have access now, permanent access to God. In fact, Hebrews in the New Testament says, Jesus is the permanent high priest. He is holy and innocent, unstained, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He, Jesus, has no need like the other high priest to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. That's our permanent high priest. Now, now watch this. 
in the Day of Atonement, on the Day of Atonement, there was two lambs or two goats. One of them represented a sin offering, atonement, sin offering. One goat was taken and the priest would lay his hands on the goat and confess the sins of the nation and send the scapegoat, they call it, out into the wilderness. They would take the other goat, they would sacrifice the goat and bring the blood into the Holy of Holies where the law was broken, where they come into the presence of God and that animal blood was sprinkled on the atonement cover or the, the mercy seat. And the animal died because there must be a blood sacrifice before there can be forgiveness. He's taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled for the sins of the people. And then the Old Testament says, after that was done on the Day of Atonement, the high priest supervised the carrying of this sin offering, guess where? Outside the camp to be burned. Leviticus sixteen twenty seven. For the bodies of those animals were brought, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place, Shekinah glory, the presence of God, by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. See, some sacrifices, after it was, it was sacrificed, you would eat of the, of the sacrifices, but the nourishment on the Day of Atonement was not food, it was forgiveness, it was hope. All of this point to Jesus. Listen again to Hebrews. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice of sin are burned outside the camp. He's quoting back in Leviticus. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, okay, set apart for God, sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we, he says, for here we have no lasting city. This is not our home, but we seek the city that is to come. Do you understand what John is showing us? In the Old Testament, sacrifice for sin was taken outside the gate. And Jesus now is that ultimate sin sacrifice. He is the true sacrifice for sin. He suffered outside the gate. Jesus fulfilled all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, including the Day of Atonement. He's, they're completed in him, they're final in him, and they have their meaning in him. And you know what's so interesting? If you go back to that day, if you go back to that day, the people that were excluded from the temple outside the city were, were broken people, lepers. And, and if they came near the city, people would scream, unclean, unclean, stay out of the city. Dr. Tim Keller writes, Jesus went down to the city and was crucified outside the gate. Sent into howling wilderness, the biblical metaphor for forsakenness. Losing the city, Jesus lost the city that was so we could be citizens of the city to come, making us salt and light in the city that is, end quote. You see what's happening? Jesus was rejected hated and cast out. He becomes unclean. He becomes our sin offering, our sin, our shame, our filth was placed on him. He's excluded so that we can be brought in. He paid our penalty and our uncleanliness goes to him so that we can be forgiven forever and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, for our sake, he, the Father, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, made right with God. 
Jesus comes to those who are cast out. Jesus comes to those who are unclean and he says, I'm willing. Come into my Father's presence. I'm willing. I will make you clean. He was taken outside the city. The brutal degradation, the ironic description. Look at the, look at, look at the sovereign decision. The soldiers had crucified Jesus. They took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. Once again, the sovereignty, the full sovereignty and control of Jesus through this is exactly what John wants us to see. John wants us to see what Jesus said would happen. Jesus said in John 10, no one lays down, no one takes my life. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down by my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. The charge has been given to me and received by, by my father. I'm laying down my life. And we see that here, Jesus in full control. And all of the Old Testament scriptures are being fulfilled. And we're going to talk about that a lot on, on Good Friday. Now, normally in, in, uh, someone in Palestine wore a tunic. If you're not familiar with that, a tunic is an undergarment next to the skin. And the outer garment would be like, more like akin to maybe a robe. And here they divided his garments or his, some of your translations say his clothing into four parts. Some people think that maybe his robe had four seams in it and they kind of let out the seam and, and separate it. But other theologians, which I kind of think is probably more accurate, is that a Jewish person would have an outer garment, a belt, sandals, and head covering, four pieces, four soldiers, and they all took a piece, maybe gambled for the piece. But the undergarment, the tunic, was one piece. No seams. It's interesting that the high priest wore, the high priest had to wear a tunic as he entered into the Holy of Holies under his garment, seamless. You could talk about that in your community group. And there, Jesus, take the undergarment, leaving him naked or almost naked and exposed. Verse 23, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it. Right? It would lose its value. They were allowed to take clothes and anything that the prisoners had was theirs. But let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures that says they divided my garment among them and my clothing they cast lots for. So the soldiers did these things. Now, let's be clear. Let's be clear. It's not like the soldiers said, hey, you know, in Psalm 22, it says, let's do this then. That's not what happened. The soldiers could care less about the scripture. The soldiers could care less about the fulfillment of Psalm 22. They had no concept of that. What John is saying is that God's mysterious sovereignty was superintended their decision. Superintended their decision. It occurred the way in which God had declared it to to happen years, 800 years before Psalm 22. God was orchestrating this. That's what John wants us to see. And if you read Psalm 22, you'll see It's all about Jesus, the mockery, the execution scene, uh, distributing clothing, all in John, uh, excuse me, Psalm 22. In fact, Psalm 22, verse 1, Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Jesus had Psalm 22 on his mind, on his heart, as the scriptures are being fulfilled. Hanging on that cross, our Lord is stripped naked and he bore our punishment for our sin. The first Adam sinned, Genesis 3, and his nakedness, the scripture says, became shameful. Sin entered the world, they saw themselves naked, and they were ashamed, and they feared. 
Genesis 3. Can you imagine the humiliation of Christ? All that he endured as he hung on that cross, half almost completely naked with hundreds of people looking on. It's no wonder David wrote in Psalm 22, for gods have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. I want you to see that. William Hendrickson says this, the clear implication of the passage which we are studying, which we are, must not escape us. It is this, Jesus bore for us the curse of nakedness in order to deliver us from it. Surely if what Ham did to his father Noah, some other nakedness going on, is singled out for special special mention because of its uh, just gross character, what the soldiers did when they disrobed Jesus and then divided his garments among themselves, casting lots, should cause us to pause with horror, end quote. Our Lord bears the curse that caused the nakedness so that we can be clothed with righteousness. This execution, this crucifixion was a complete miscarriage of justice with soldiers gambling over his innocent man's clothing. And to an onlooker, it must have seen that what a waste of life. 35, 33-year-old man, foolish preacher, Pointless, useless, nothing to show for it, almost all alone. Little did the religious leaders know, little did the Romans know, little did the Gentiles know, and the Jewish onlookers know that God's sovereign plan was being out, being made out, being completed and worked out in the decision of sinful people. This gruesome act, this brutal humiliation, God is in control, God is in control. Yeah, I, I think that we ought to look at the work of Christ, particularly in redemption. Remembering his suffering and his ultimate victory that Jesus went through, planned and purposed, and not only triumphed through it, but triumphed through it over it. Now, I realize we'll never go through that. We'll never go endure the suffering that Jesus endured. But as I thought about it this this week, I'm thinking, well, what can we learn from it? And what popped into my head and what I thought about was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians said that he didn't want his brothers that he's writing to in Corinth to be unaware of the afflictions that he experienced. He says, we were, we were so, it was so bad Utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Maybe some of you feel that way. Or have felt that way. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And then Paul writes, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, all of Paul's life was trusting in the sovereignty of God in all things. And, and you can say, well, what did he really suffer? How could, bad could it really be? Well, he tells us. Let me just mention a few things. Flictions, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, sleepless nights, hunger, five times beaten by the hands of the Jews with 40 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, and he doesn't mean smoke the bowl, Three times I was shipwrecked, a night in the sea, frequent journeys, dangers in rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from his own people, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, hardships, sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, without food, in cold, 
And all of this, he says, there's one other thing. There's the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. We'll add that on. Paul was able to endure because he knew God was in control. And the more he took control, the more God brought him through to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Jesus trusted his father and the sovereign plan that his father had. We should learn and take that lesson. Trust him too. And lastly, finally, the familiar devotion. Verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus was his mom, his mother, and his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, four ladies. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to her, woman, behold your son. Then he turned to the disciple in whom he loved, which is John, the eyewitness account who's writing this, and he says to her, to him, behold your mom, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Four women, standing, kneeling, crying, I'm sure, in the brutal execution. Jesus there, John, the disciple whom he loved, giving the eyewitness account. And what do we take away from this narrative, this part of the narrative? Let me give you four things quickly. You can talk about them in community group. Number one, it is practical. Number two, it is theological, charitable, and communal. I'll go through each one really quickly. Number one, it's practical. In those days, you've got to put yourself in the first century. Most scholars and historians believe that Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, and the husband of Mary had already died, leaving Mary a widow. In that culture, widows had difficulty supporting themselves, right? Can't just go down to the store, get a phone by the government. You know, the government wasn't handing stuff out in those days. Therefore, Mary, maybe in her late 40s, early 50s, her eldest son, who took care of her, is leaving her without support, without income, someone she was probably dependent upon, and now she's in dire need. Jesus looks at her and sees John, a relative, and says, take care of her, provide for her, protect her. Jesus' brothers, half-brothers, weren't there. Jesus knew that John would take the responsibility of caring for Mary. Jesus was pronouncing, John, take my place. Take my place. Be her protector. Be her for provider. Now that my earthly life is over. So we want to honor Mary. We want to honor Mary. We want, to, we want to say she is blessed, as the scriptures say. We want to say about Mary that she was chosen by God. She was chosen by God to give birth to Jesus. But she in no way plays any role in our salvation. Mary recognizes herself as a sinner in need of salvation. Just read Luke 1. She identifies as God as God my Savior. She calls herself the bondservant who needs mercy. So to offer a prayer or consider her somehow part of this co-matrix or co-redemptrix that they call her, it's just not in Scripture. And it's actually antithetical to what Mary claims for herself. Godly woman, love the Lord, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's practical. Number two, it's theological. Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. In the law, Exodus and Deuteronomy, it says, honor your mother and father. Honor your mother and father as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that you may go well with you in the land. The eldest son, it's his job to take care. He's performing on this cross uh, as he's dying for our redemption, being faithful to his responsibilities to the word of God, demonstrating from the cross the need to honor your mom and dad and to care for widows, which we read in Scripture. So, We're going to move on. 
Practical, theological, and charitable. I use the word charitable, it makes sense. Um, it's, it's the word love in the King James, if you, read, if you read the King James. The Greek word for unconditional sacrificial love in the Greek is agape. And some places in the older translations it's called charity. I'm talking about love. I'm talking about that sacrificial love that God has for us, that, that unmerited love that God pours out on us. And here's Jesus on the cross expressing sacrificial love from severe, excruciating agony. He's loving his mom. He's loving his mom. Back in Luke 2, we're told that she is told that a sword will pierce her heart. A sword will pierce your own soul. Think about the kind of love that a mom, moms, has for their sons, their daughter. And think about having a perfect son love you back. I know you can't imagine that. (laughs) But this was the kind of love unlike anything any mom has ever been loved before. Jesus loved her mom perfectly. Sons cannot and do not love their moms perfectly. And here in a, in a dying, torturous death, even when, when a sword goes through her own soul, Jesus is still loving her. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now the Passover of the feast, Jesus knew that his hour had come out of the world to go back to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the utmost. I love you so much, Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you. I love you so much, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. I love you so much, I'm coming back to you. I love you so much, I'm giving you my joy, my peace, and my love. And mom, I love you so much, I'm gonna lay down my life for you. For no greater love has this that a man laid down his life for his friends. He's loving his mom. Practical, theological, charitable, and finally communal. I think every commentary, everything I read this week makes a big deal about the fact that Jesus does not Give care, her, over to the care of one of his half-brothers. Every one of them mentions it. In that culture, in that day, the next brother in line would take care of mom. We know Jesus had half-brothers. Matthew tells us Joseph, Simeon, Judas. There was, there was James. Why, why didn't Jesus follow the customs of that day? Some people say, well, it says in John, I think John 7, that his brothers didn't believe yet. They will come to believe. At least some of them we know. Some say, well, they weren't there. Maybe that's why. But I'll tell you, I'm not sure, but I know one thing we learned from this passage. Whatever the reason is, there's one thing we could take away, that Jesus' death brings us into a permanent, deeper, and more meaningful relationship than with our own families. You see, the some family is everything. You, you, you try to live up to the expectation of your family. You try to live up and fulfill and please your family. It's all about the family. What you do in your career is not so much our culture, but it's all about what's best for the family. Some people don't care. We live in an individualistic culture where it's about me, my job, where I move, what I do. Individuality becomes the idol, not the family. In other cultures, family becomes the idol. And now he looks at his disciple and he says, she is your mom. He looks at his mom, he says, he is your son. You know what he's saying? People who believe in me, people who are in Christ, have a stronger bond than they with the members of their own family. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is teaching. They interrupt him and like, listen, your mother, your mother and your brothers are, and your sisters are outside. In fact, they came, the Bible says, because they thought he was out of his mind. And when Jesus gets word, this is what he says. 
Who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mothers and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I don't think he's taking a shot at his family. He's explaining the ties by the blood of Jesus and the work of his spirits. If your family rejects you, if they think you're crazy as they did him, I will give you unconditional love. That goes beyond the flesh, beyond relationship. I will adopt you into my heavenly home. And that's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ says blood, race, good family, bad family, social standings, whether it's good or bad in the family, or anything else in, in all earthly reality is less important because before the throne of God, we're all sinners. Before the gospel of God, before the love and righteousness of God, none of those things ultimately matter. It doesn't compare to the love and righteousness of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to flesh that out. We're going to close. But, you know, the more you think of this, the more you hang out with your family or whomever group you hang with, the more you look like them. You won't get nothing out of Christ-likeness in your life unless you're willing to be in the family Christ has placed you into. Family, the scripture talks about family, brothers and sisters, bought by the precious blood of Christ. So how, how do we become that close? How do we become that intimate? How do we become as family members of God? Listen, see Jesus Christ on the cross, losing the face of the Father he had from all eternity as he cried out, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? He for a moment in time lost the loving intimacy with the Father, greater than we'll ever know, suffered infinitely more than we'll ever know, so that we can be his children. We can be brought in. We can be purchased and be part of his family. It's about the gospel. And that's what this communion table is about. This communion table is not something you do at home. It's something we do as a family. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the band's going to play, we're confessing sin, we're repenting of sin. We call the whole church to repentance. Why? Because we still sin. And after we confess and repent sin quietly in our, in our seats, we celebrate. Because we don't want to stay there. We want to celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus, that his body was broken on our behalf. His blood was shed so that we could have forgiveness of sins. I read this morning to the band. By the way, the band takes communion before they come up, before the service. You're thinking the band never gets to eat communion. They do. I was talking to the band, and Corinthians says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. What we need to understand is the word unworthy is an adverb modifying a verb, not an adjective, talking about the person. And not to do with your worth as a person, we can never work and have enough to work toward coming to this community table. That's why it's about, it's about our sin. It's talking about an unworthy manner that we need to confess our sins. We need, we need to acknowledge our sin, and then we need to come and celebrate. It's about doing it reverently and honorably. It's not about coming because you don't have sin. It's about coming because you have sin. The band's going to play. We're going to confess. We're going to repent. And then we're going to celebrate. The table is open to all Christ followers. If you're not a Christ follower, we're glad you're here. We love you. We want to talk with you and and continue to pray and come. And and we just want to love you as much as we can. But let's, let's recognize what Christ has done for us. Father, thank you. Father, thank you. For your sovereign plan. Lord Jesus, thank you in your obedience to the Father's plan. Went through this brutal 
death on the cross, but even more, taking our sin upon yourselves in that dark hour, crying out in desolation, why have you forsaken me as sin is being poured out on you? And then we know, Lord, we know that you said into your hands I commit my spirit back into the presence of your Father, empty tomb three days later, ascension and someday coming again. Father, help us to eat of the bread and drink of the cup, confessing our sins, trusting in Jesus, resting in, loving, worshiping him, the one true God.